Amen. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, I brought some rope. Just enough to what? Hang myself with it. <laughs> no, Cole, I don't need you to tie it around me because I already have a little loop on this rope. Um, but I did bring this for a reason. And uh, part of it is I'm going to go ahead and find a chair leg here to put this loop around. Don't break anything while I do it. But in the um, 19th century, the Indians of the Plains were a very um, uh, amazing culture in many ways. And in fact, their fight to preserve their culture is, is amazing for the last uh, couple of centuries. And one of the things that they used to do, obviously, like many of the tribes, is they used to have times of war and times when they had to defend their village or their tribe. And every now and then, uh, there would be a warrior from one of those uh, American Indian tribes who would perform something called tying, them, tying, tying the stake. Tying the stake. And they didn't have rope like this, uh, probably something more like buffalo hide and a pretty, pretty decent uh, piece of wood. And they would pound that into the ground and they would take this stake and they would go ahead and tie it to their ankle. And the reason they would tie it to their ankle is so that they would say to both their enemies and their fellow warriors, I'm committed. I am not going to run. For our enemies to get to us, they have to get through me. And I'm symbolizing that by tying my ankles. Even if I try to run, I can't. And so, you know, in most cases, many of these warriors were killed in glorious combat. I mean, that's the, the few records we have of this practice are not of the warriors who lived, but of the warriors who gave themselves in sacrifice to the cause. Wholly committed, holding nothing back, no plan B, no escape route. They tied the stake. They tied their ankles to the stake. A few of the warriors, however, a couple of stories, they were never even touched. Even if the tribe was ultimately conquered by another tribe, they would bypass the warrior on the stake or they would see the warrior on the stake and they would give up the fight and not even try to make the war in the first place. The act of bravery was thought to provoke what many of the American Indians of the Plains called powerful medicine. And it would deter would-be invaders, invaders or attackers because they believed that the gods which that warrior stood for would exact revenge upon them since he was giving sacrificial death in order to defend his tribe. Well, the point is this. Either outcome made a bold statement to the world. And the statement was this. I am not running. I am sold out to my cause. And I will stand my ground. And there's no amount of rejection. There's no amount of intimidation. There's no amount of manipulation that will move me. It was not, and here's 
here's the point here. Is this, was, this is not a feeling you feel. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to tie myself to a stake and that's it. It wasn't a feeling you felt. It's a choice you make. You make that choice often despite your feelings, often despite your circumstances, often despite the words of your friends or the words of your family or the words of your coworkers. You make that choice often despite everything else because you know, I am committed, I am not wanting, I cannot quit. And it's really a beautiful picture of a spirit-filled Christian as well. That we tie ourselves to the stake. And boy, you can really tell the difference between people who are tied and who are not tied. One gospel story that teaches this is found at the end of John chapter 6. We're going to be going there this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, it's toward the latter half of the chapel, John, John chapter John chapter 6, beginning in verse 56. By the way, this is the first time that people will leave Jesus by the thousands. So far, he has only been attracting a lot of people. At one point, uh, about fifteen to 20,000 people are on a mountainside listening to Jesus. And uh, Jesus begins with teachings that everybody can kind of get and relate to, you know, uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and, and so on and so forth. But now Jesus is getting to the real food. And as Jesus begins to get to the real food, people decide to leave him. He says here in verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Verse 57, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Excuse me. Just kind of blinked off for a second. He says, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread, and he's pointing to himself, will live forever. Okay, now, that's a little weird, right? I mean, that's, uh, so Jesus, we're supposed to become cannibals, feeding and drinking on you, and that, and then we're going to live forever? I mean, you can say it. That's a little weird. Go ahead and say it. That's a little weird. It's a little weird. Sometimes you got to be really comfortable speaking to your Bible and saying, Bible, that is a little weird what you just said. It doesn't always make sense. This isn't the only reason why people left, but as Jesus began to speak more and more in figurative language, those who had the discerning of the Holy Spirit knew exactly what he was talking about, and those who didn't often left. Once Jesus stopped giving out free pizza and chip fish sticks, once he stopped some of his big healing and deliverance, once he stopped doing Friday nights to teach people about the deeper truths of God, people began to bail. And they bailed in the thousands. In fact, a few verses later in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says uh, this, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him these weren't people just checking people out these were disciples these were people who had said i'm committed to learn under you and there was hundreds thousands of people who were doing this they were following him all around getting his teaching but at this point there were many that began to turn back on him it is said that jesus 
built a mega church of 15,000 and by the time he rose from the dead there were about 500. That was the size of the discipleship base that Jesus had at the resurrection. And so if there was any time for some of Jesus' closest disciples to leave him, this would have been the time. This would have been the time for people to bail. And so Jesus kind of turns to his close friends and he asks them in verse 67, do you want to go too? Do you want to go too? Notice this, Jesus never attempted to stop them from going. Nor does he ever attempt to stop anybody from going. In fact, I think we need to pray to Jesus. Jesus, if I ever get tempted to go and I start going, please stop me. I don't want to go. I know I need to go. Life might get hard. I might start freaking out. I might start wigging out. I might do something stupid. Jesus, save me from that. That's a good prayer to pray before all of that happens. In verse 67, Jesus says, do you want to go too? Asserting that we have the free will to stay or to go. And in verse 69, they said, and this is awesome. They said, Jesus... Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? Where are we going to go, Jesus? You are the Holy One. You have the words of life. And with that, the disciples, including Peter, tied their ankles to the stake. They, in essence, said, Jesus, we're not going anywhere. And that's what you see with the disciples. Jesus, we're going with you to Jerusalem. Jesus, that we'll die for you. Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, we are not going. We have tied the stake. We are not going anywhere. But they did. It wouldn't be too many months later. Judas returns with temple guards and Roman soldiers. And they're not there to receive healing and deliverance. They're not there for the pizza and fish sticks. They're there to arrest Jesus for a trial that will result in execution. And they all know it. And they all run. They bail on Jesus. They ran in the garden. They ran in the woods. One gospel says one took off so fast he was naked. Didn't even put his clothes on. That's how quickly he ran. Now, you may ask me, man, it seems like they tie the stake at one moment. Did they untie the stake in the next moment? I mean, after, their, after the crucifixion of Jesus, when you see them returning to their old lives, did they untie the stake? Just because you have moments of failure or weakness does not mean you've untied your ankles from the stake. They didn't stop loving Jesus. I don't even think they stopped following Jesus in their heart. They were just confused. They were caught up in, the, in, the moment, in a moment they couldn't understand. What? Wait, you're arresting Jesus? What? Wait, what's going on here? And they saw those flashy swords and they saw those long spears and they just decided hey i better get a, get some distance from this and see what happens but the fact of the matter is just because you have moments of weakness or failure 
doesn't mean you've untied your ankles from the stake. You may have loosened the knot a little, right? You may have loosened the knot a little, maybe a little bit looser on your leg than it was before, but you haven't walked away from God. None of those disciples walked away from God except one. One who had tied the stake, oh, he untied the stake. He took his foot out of the stake and he threw the stake away. And that was Judas. Judas unstaked himself. Notice this. At the time of Jesus' arrest, Judas wasn't confused. I don't even think Jesus, Judas was particularly scared. He had the armies behind him. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. That's how confident he is in his unbelief. The rest of the disciples, they scatter out of fear and confusion and weakness. But they didn't untie the stake. Judas did. They didn't. In fact, how can I say that? The fact of the matter is, after the resurrection, it took one appearance from Jesus and one breaking of bread for all of those disciples to rejoice with joy and retighten that knot. And let me tell you this, those disciples never untightened that knot again and they faced a lot worse than Roman soldiers and guards. Some of them faced the devil himself, but they had that knot tightened because they were sold out. They told Jesus, we can't quit. We'll never quit. Sometimes fighting the good fight, that's our series that we're going to, that we're teaching on. Sometimes fighting the good fight means tying the knot in the ground, tying the, your ankle to the stake into the ground, and then keeping it tight. And I just want to give you three quick points here. How to keep your ankles tight. How to keep that knot tight so that like the disciples, you don't suffer a loosening and run away in confusion and fear. My first point is this, and if you have, a, uh, if you have one of the sh discussion sheets, uh, you can go ahead and flip that over and you'll be able to write in the answers here. My first point is this, keep the knot tight by preparing for times when you just don't get it. When you just don't get it. Ultimately, I think Judas probably untied himself from the stake because he just couldn't figure out Jesus. And Judas was somebody who had to figure everybody out if he was going to believe in it, believe in him. He had to figure everything out if he was going to buy into it. All right? Here is really the, the hard truth of Christianity. You will not have everything figured out. That's why we call it faith, right? You will not have everything figured out. There's going to be seasons where you are scratching your head and you're saying, God, I'm confused. I thought it was this way. And God's going, I know it's not. And I know I'm not giving you the answer. Tie the stake. Stay with me. Stick with me. Trust me. Don't go off. You may not understand everything all at once. In fact, you may not understand everything this side of heaven. But God's saying, don't untie that stake. Stick with me. I promise you, you're going to have an amazing reward. The people said to Jesus after he started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they said, this is hard. We don't get it. It's tough stuff, Jesus. We'd rather go and listen to the rabbis. At least they make sense. Rather than sticking around to ask questions, they walked away from him. 
And that was their biggest mistake. In fact, that is still the world's mistake today. They hear just a little bit about Jesus, a little bit about the gospel, and they don't ask enough questions and they walk away. Because we think as humans sometimes we just got to get everything instantly. I don't get everything instantly. I still don't get everything instantly. I know I became a follower of Jesus when I was 17. That was 30 years ago. Some things I know better and some things I'm even more confused on now. It's not a you have to get it before you jump in. It's you jump in and over the long haul you start to get it. Amen? I mean, think of it, for example, how many people can really describe the Trinity? What a high Christian thought. The Trinity. We believe in one God, right? That's what we tell the world. There is just one God. And then we start saying, oh, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, is there one God or is there three gods? I mean, it's a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? You know? We, it, for us, it, it doesn't make sense that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could work in such unity they form one being. But that's what we teach. Another one is the doctrine of providence. You know what the doctrine of providence is? We don't like this one very much. It's Romans 8, 28. That God will work all things for the good for those who love him and are according to his purpose. Why did Paul write that? Because bad things happen. And it's a hard swallow to say God is allowing this bad thing to happen to you for a good outcome. No, we don't, we don't like that one so much. That one's a head scratcher too. We'd rather go back to the Trinity. <laughs> or the figures of speech. Jesus often spoke in figures of speech. In John chapter 2, we're staying in John, you know. In John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the Jews are looking and they're looking at their big beautiful temple and they're like, it took 40 years for this to be completed. What kind of maniac says tear it down and I'll rebuild it? He was talking about his body. But they didn't get the figurative language. In John chapter 3, he says to one of the Jewish leaders named Nicodemus, he says, you can't go to heaven unless you're born again. Nicodemus is scratching his head. He's going, so I'm going to crawl back into my mother's womb and be reborn? I mean, he just didn't get it. And she said, no, 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 no. You're born of the flesh, so you have a body, but you need to be born of the spirit because your spirit is what's dead. Oh, John chapter 6, same thing. He wasn't talking about cannibalism when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about inner food, spiritual food that we need to live. And so the disciples, we're not going to understand everything at once. And the disciples didn't understand everything at once. And they were with Jesus 24-7. Can you imagine that? They lived and breathed with a physical Jesus right there. And they still didn't get it. Totally. In fact, we probably only grasp about .00001% of spiritual truth. Faith says this. We'll get the answers when we need them and we'll get the answers when we can comprehend them. Some of them will get this side of heaven before we die and some of them will make sense two seconds after we die. That's why we call it faith. Number two, keep the knot tight by respecting quality over quantity. Jesus didn't need 15,000 people to get the church going. 
Jesus really didn't even use the 500 at first. You know how many Jesus used on the first real day of the church? About as many as we have in ours. About 120. 120 people. And they went and changed the world. You know how they went and changed the world? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they couldn't contain the witness of God inside of them any longer. They had to tell everybody. God respects quality over quantity. God could have had 100,000 people. He started with 120. It actually reminds me of the story of Gideon. I don't know if you know that story very well. Gideon was one of the leaders in Israel, in ancient Israel. And their enemies, the Moabites, were going to invade and conquer them and enslave them. Very real risk back in the ancient day. So Gideon is the leader and he musters up an army of about 32,000 men. You know what God says? They're quantity, not quality. They're too much. Gideon says, God, how do you know they're too much? Well, he says, do this, Gideon. Send away every man who's newly married. They shouldn't be in the army anyway. And send away every man who's afraid. Now, in 32,000 men, there's maybe, what, maybe a quarter of them were new marrieds. You're talking about men, anywhere from 20 to 40 here. So let's say a quarter of them were newly married. But about 75 of them were simply cowards. You know how many of those uh, from the 32,000 that walked away that day? 22,000 men. When Gideon gave them the free pass to not have to go fight, 22,000 men went home. I, I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking on my way home, wait a minute, if we all go home, <laughs> who's going to defend us? But they weren't thinking that. They were scared or they were young married. So Gideon's got 10,000 men to go up against about 30 or 40. And Gideon's thinking, well, I don't know if I really like the odds, but 10,000 is still 10,000. You know what God says to him? It's still too much. Gideon's going, what? It's still too much. God eventually whittled the number of Gideon's men down to 300 men. And he said, that's it, Gideon. Now we got quality. Those men, quality. In fact, for all of you who know me, my goal has always been to grow our church to about 300 people because I believe that God can defend a city, change a city, and that we can see the enemy fall with an army of 300. So that's my hope. That would be two full services in this room. That would be my dream to see that one day. Gideon, and you know what's, what's really funny to, to finish the story? Gideon's men never even fought. They got already all 300 of them, the 300, we're not talking about the 300 at Thermopylae, not the Greeks. This is before that, Gideon. 300 of them. They get together and they get ready to fight. And God goes and fights them for them. And there's all this confusion. And the enemy turns and slaughters each other. God didn't even want the 300 to fight. He just wanted the 300 to watch this and then go back and tell everybody what God did. That's what church is about. We come here, we see God do stuff, and then we go out and we tell everybody what God did. Hopefully some of you will be talking about what Kirk and Joe and Mark and people who testified. Man, uh, Joe's wife Linda, was, she's been at home for a year. She hasn't been able to drink, to hold a cup and drink for a year. And the morning after we pray for her, she wakes up and does it. That's worth testifying about. 
That's way beyond the power of coincidence, don't you think? Number three, keep the knot taut. Tight. Keep the knot tight by saying, where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? The disciples said, where are we going to go, Jesus? I think the extended conversation went something like this. Peter probably said this, and I'm going to read this. He said, Jesus, actually, we've been talking about this. Jesus, to be honest, you're not always easy to live with. Jesus, sometimes you kind of scare us, actually. (laughs) Jesus, sometimes you embarrass us, too. Sometimes we're confused. In fact, Jesus, you offend a lot of people we think are important. But despite that, Jesus, there are three things that keep us tied to you. Three things that keep that knot tight. Three things where we have staked ourselves to you. And the first is this. Nobody can do what you do. Nobody can do what you do. Nobody can do what Jesus does. Nobody. The second thing he says is, nobody says what you say. They said, Jesus, what you say meets our deepest needs. What you say delivers us from our sins and frees us from our fears. They both, your words explain both who, what we are and what life is. Nobody speaks like you. Nobody understands life like you do. Nobody understands the world like you do. And then finally they said, Jesus, the third thing, Nobody does what you can do. Nobody says what you can say. And Jesus, we've seen your character. We've seen your character, and it's good. It's holy. You're filled with love like we've never been loved before. You're filled with joy, a joy we need so desperately. We've watched you. We know you're God. There's nowhere else to go. One time in one of the various youth groups I've been a part of, I had a young man call me up and say, uh, (laughs) he said, you know, Tom, that's it. You know what, Tom, that's it. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this Christian thing anymore. I'm not going to church. I'm not doing this. And I just wanted to respect you. And I just wanted to call you and say, you know what, I'm walking away. You know what my answer was? I said, okay, fine. Walk away. I think you should do it now. Just hang it all up. Walk away. Slight pause on the other end of the line. You know what he said? Tom, you know I can't do that. You know I can't do that. Of course you can't do that because there's nowhere else to go. He knew that. We know that. I think if the world was honest with itself, Even the world knows it. When you come in contact with Jesus, face to face, either through the Bible or through a a real spirit-filled church, you realize, there is no other place I want to go. This is it. This is where our deepest needs are met. Jesus said, do you want to go? Where else are we going to go? Atheism? Atheism, a cold, dark, purposeless existence where you have no meaning, no purpose, no real reason for morality. 
most of those people I meet, they've been divorced five times and in therapy for the last 20 years. Atheism is not a choice. I can tell you that right now. You might say, well, what about other religions? Other religions aren't a choice. (laughs) Every other religion in the world puts you in fear that you will not measure up. Every other religion in the world puts you in fear that you will not measure up, and so we exhaust ourselves by working harder and harder and harder and harder. Jesus Jesus says this. He says, hey, hey, stop, stop, stop. You can't do it. But don't feel bad. You never could. But I did it. I did it for you. I did it for you on the cross. And because I'm God and I own everything on the earth, if you choose my death for your death, if you choose my righteousness for your righteousness, if you choose my resurrection for your resurrection, then you can have it, but you got to want it. you got to choose it, and you got to tie the stake. Amen? So this morning, for some of you, tying the stake may actually be coming to faith in Christ for the very first time. It may be that sense of, you know what? I've always maybe made a religion out of Christianity, but this is different this is different need the Holy Spirit in my heart I need to tie the stake because I don't want to be like Judas and I don't want to live in the land of confusion and fear like the disciples who ran when Jesus was arrested I want to be like Peter who stood up and said men of Israel we are not drunk we are not crazy. We've been with Jesus. So this morning with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like you to pray a prayer with me, but only pray it if you want to respond to this message. If you don't, please be courteous and just give me a moment to pray this with us. But everybody else, pray this with me and believe in faith. And I promise you the Lord's going to be tying that stake. Best stake you could ever be tied to. Say, Lord Jesus, I tie my ankles to the stake of the cross. I die with you. I am crucified. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And I pray as you rose, rise me into a world of everlasting love acceptance and forgiveness I commit to following you and keeping that knot tight in Jesus name Amen